Hi, I'm Jacqueline. And I'm Courtney. And this is Caffeinated Crimes. Welcome back to take two because Jacqueline had a really loud car and Courtney bumped her elbow. So that intro did not go well to begin with. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I just slammed my elbow right into my desk and it was like the biggest little line (laughs) on the thing. And I was like, nope, no way I can cut that out. (laughs) That's not a good start. Like, we'll we'll just start over because we haven't... uh... You know, we can say our names again. We're pretty good at that at this point, so we can do that a couple times if we need to. Yeah, the rest of it's a little questionable sometimes, but I can say my name. Yes, got that we, part. we got that part. We we finally finished editing parts one and two of Eileen Warnos, which was quite an ordeal because those were some super long episodes, and we could not get our act together during those episodes. So, yeah, there was just like minutes of a time that I cut out where it was like. There was one point, and we were trying to make sure we were pronouncing Tyra right. Yes. And there was, like, two minutes of that, and then, like, two minutes of me just going off on a tangent that I was going to cut out and all that stuff. <laughs> so, yeah, so we're, we're happy to be here with a fresh start, and hopefully this episode goes yeah. more smoothly. But Yeah, no more Eileen. Yep. No more... Maybe no more Florida for a while. <laughs> That's true. The Florida ones, who I mean, there's always... They're just crazy. So we do have a shout out, a friend of the podcast. We can, we can say that now, but my friend, John, I mentioned him a few episodes back, texted me, said he wanted to support the podcast. And he so graciously got us a subscription to newspaper.com. So now when we do these older cases, we can look at these newspapers and I'm so excited. Guys, I cannot tell you how excited I am about this subscription. So I did for Robert Foley, I did like the week trial. I probably spent like six hours digging through old newspaper clippings and then it got to the point where it wasn't even about Robert Foley anymore. It was just look at this random case and look at this random case because newspapers.com comes up all the time when you're like searching stuff but you can only see like one small snippet of it and you can actually read the whole thing and it's like but I want to see what's in there and I'm just so so stoked about this so thank you John we appreciate it more than you know yeah I'm so excited because a newspaper is such like a good source especially like back in the day when there was just like no news articles so being able to like look at all those so now we can do some of the older cases and get at least the newspaper information we know is probably not always reliable, but <laughs> we can get some information and quote it from a source. <laughs> yes, so we can get more information than like snippets of Wikipedia that have nothing backing it up and it's like, oh, I don't know, versus if we can find like four different newspapers that report the same thing, it's like, okay, this is looking more legit. So that's going to be so helpful to us. I'm super excited. Yeah. Thanks again, John. We're so excited. Yes. We're going to use it all the time. All the time. Um, We also have another shout out for Courtney's sister, Ashton. Um, So she is the one who designed our lovely Caffeinated Crimes logo that we are obsessed with. And she also made us shirts this weekend. So they are adorable and I'm so excited to wear mine. Courtney and I are so excited to be together at some point after this pandemic so we can wear them together and just shamelessly promote our own podcast because that's the kind of people that we are and I'm just so stoked. So thank you, Ashton. Um, If that's something that you guys would be interested in, um, in buying a shirt, let us know and we'll see if we can get that up and going for you guys. Yeah, I'm so excited. If you follow us on Instagram, we posted it back a few weeks ago at this point. I don't know. (laughs) Like a month ago at this point, maybe. Um, But... 
yeah, it's they're so cute. I'm so excited. And if you do want anything custom made or have something in mind, just reach out to Mama Llama Custom Designs. You can find her on Facebook or Instagram. Reach out to her and she'll make stuff. It's the cutest stuff. It's the best stuff. I wear her stuff all the time. So um, I sent Ashton a picture a couple weekends ago because I was wearing um, a shirt and a hat and I think something else, and then I have my water bottle that has their logo sticker on it, and I'm like, I'm just a walking <laughs> advertisement for you today, Ashton, so. Yeah. Yeah, I have lots of stuff from her, and she makes amazing stuff. She made all of my stockings and, like, my animal stockings, and they're adorable, and anyway, so. Yeah, and hopefully at this point, Patreons have their mugs. Yes. They're coming, I promise. <laughs> um, my sister also has two children under three, so she gets a little backed up. Yes. But they're coming. Hopefully at this point you have them or they're in the mail. Yay. So. Super excited. And as you know, we like to give a little true crime corner update talk about before we do our case. Um, and if- <laughs> We'll come up with a more catchy name for that at some point. <laughs> Yeah, at some point, rather than me just rambling, trying to come up (laughs) with a word. Um, But uh, if you've been watching, the Golden State Killer, or Joseph D'Angelo, officially pled guilty to all counts, basically. And my favorite part was a clip I saw where they're talking about how the victim described him as having a small penis, and the entire courtroom cheered. Yes, that was delightful. So he is now just going to rot in prison for the rest of his life. He's not looking too good, so probably won't be Mm-mm. that long. So yep. goodbye, so sad. good sir. Not good sir. I also saw something, um, I wish I could say who said it originally, but the internet has lots of stuff, so I don't remember. Um, but basically talked about like this like masked man who terrorized people for so long is now in this like clear like shield for his Mm -hmm. court proceedings and so it's just like the irony of like oh yeah you got to like cover your face but everyone can see you so yeah I thought that was um very poetic I guess as well yeah and it's super fitting that like I'll be gone in the dark the documentary series is coming out now too and I haven't started watching it yet, but I'm going to very, very soon. And yeah, it's it's awesome. I'm glad I hate that it took so long. Like I don't he just escaped people, but he's in jail mm-hmm. now and the victims and their families can finally get some closure. Yes. And he can go rot in a prison cell. Yep. So definitely read, like we said, the book um, and watch the documentary, I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Um, also, there is a good series, uh, Case Files, which is a pretty good podcast. Um, they did like a f- five or six part series on him, but it was back before he was caught. Um, but it, I was in my office at work and literally I was like, oh my God, he's in here. <laughs> like it was so creepy. Uh, but that's a really good one. And they did an update, but they interviewed a lot of like the victims and stuff like that. So it was really good. Mm-hmm. And then you had a podcast, right? Yes. And then the man in the window, which I believe was Wondery. If that's not correct, we will cut this out. Um, but it was also super good and they did theirs after he was caught. So you actually have more information about who he was like outside of the crime. So you learn about his like police work and they interviewed people that were on the police force with him and they interviewed um, his ex-girlfriend who comes up a lot in Mm -hmm. these cases. Um, So that one was super good, also super creepy. Um, I like distinctly remember like standing in my bedroom folding laundry when they played some of the tapes where he would like call and taunt the victims and like full body chills. I was like, oh God. 
But Courtney and I decided that we will most likely not cover that case just because so many other better people have done it way better than we ever could. And it's such a big case. I don't know how we could do it. Like, that's like, yeah. you have like a whole podcast, like probably, I don't know how many episodes Man in the Window has. There's usually at least 10 in podcasts yeah. like that that have just gone so in depth that we don't think we could probably do it justice or no. any, there's so many other good resources out there. I mean, yes. if we get super famous and people demand us do him, we'll think <laughs> about it. But <laughs> Yes. So we um, will just leave that to them and just refer you guys to their podcasts. So yeah, I haven't listened to the man in the window, so that might be my podcast this week because I binge podcasts way too fast. So it's really good. <laughs> and like I said, I liked it too, because it's so different because it's the first thing that I've heard since he was caught. So mm-hmm. it's the first thing that I've listened to that has information like more about him. And cause you know, we all know like the speculations of who was this guy at this time. And so now it's like, Oh, here's all the information about what he was doing at the times that he committed these crimes and everything. So definitely recommend it. Yeah. Okay. So now we're just going to keep digging on down into sadness. Um, yeah, we're just going to keep boop, 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 boop. Yes. Boop. So today we are going to tell the tragic story of Khalif Browder. So most of our information came from a documentary called Time, the Khalif Browder story. Um, we also got some information from a couple of New Yorker articles an NPR article, and a Bronx News 12 article as well. So on May 15, 2010, 16-year-old Khalif Browder and 19-year-old Shamel Peterson were arrested by police who said they had stolen a backpack. Khalif would end up spending 1,126 days in jail, the majority of which in solitary confinement before his case was eventually dismissed. And I almost couldn't make it through the intro without crying, so this is going to be a rough one. (laughs) Um, yeah, I, the documentary, the time, the Khalif Browder story, it's on Netflix. Please, please watch it. I just like was sitting there just like crying the whole time. And I'm like, Jacqueline, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. Cause they're interviewing, like he's interviewed in it. Like, I think they started to make it like before, mm-hmm. um, what happens and like his mom's in it and his siblings and just like everyone talking about it. And it's just like. God, it's like a hit to yeah. the gut. It's just this so, is so such sad. a tragic story. So, Khalif Browder was born on May 25th, 1993. Um, he was adopted by Vanita and Eddie Browder, uh, but he didn't find out that he was adopted until he was around 12 to 13 years old. So, his biological mother was addicted to drugs and he was taken away from her when he was still very young. Um, his adopted mother, Vanita, had two of his biological siblings, Dion and Kamal, um, so then she ended up getting custody of him as well. Um, so this was during the height of the war against drugs, so his biological mother didn't really get much help. She was just punished by the justice system, um, and at that time it didn't really matter what the drug was or how much, you just immediately got your baby taken away from you. His adopted mother, Vanita, also adopted Nicole, Akeem, and Rahim as well. So, pretty big family in the Browder family. Yeah, there was a lot of kids. <laughs> Which, Vanita just sounds like a fucking angel, honestly. She is. She's like the best woman ever. Yeah. Basically. So, his adoptive father, Everett Browder, who also went by Eddie, um, left the family when Khalif was still pretty young. Um, didn't really leave on good terms with anyone, so Vanita was crying a lot, and, you know, the rest of the kids saw that, and they didn't really see Eddie a lot, and he wasn't really involved in their lives very much 
especially when they were younger. Um, Khalif was described as fun and energetic. His brother Kamal said that he would just be so annoying sometimes because he had so much energy and would just constantly ask him questions, which what sibling (laughs) doesn't feel that way about their siblings? (laughs) Yeah. He was described as a goofball, just always telling jokes, making people laugh. So he just had such a good heart, and everyone said he was, like, a really good friend. He liked to play sports. He liked to go to the parks. He liked to go to parties. Just a really fun person to be around. Just seemed like such a good guy. And such a typical teenager, you know? It's like, I want to go down to the park. I want to play basketball. I want to go to a party with my friends. You know, like, things that you want to do when you're in high school. like Doing the teenage things. Um, So, like I said, since they weren't really on good terms with his dad, that kind of, like, changed him a lot. Um, So he really just wanted to find, like, family and people who understood, like, what he was going through and people who had had, like, the same experiences. So he eventually became friends with Shamel Peterson, which we mentioned in the introduction. Um, So he was older. He wasn't in school anymore. So they would get together, smoke and drink occasionally. Um, Another friend said that it seemed that trouble really followed Shamel around. Shamel and Khalif were eventually arrested together for stealing a bakery truck. I know this isn't a joke, and I'm sorry, but I'm just like, I mean, that sounds like a pretty <laughs> thing to steal. Like, <laughs> yeah. Sounds pretty yummy. Sorry, it's not funny. Um, so Khalif was charged with joyriding in the bakery truck, and there's he had a lot of peer pressure to deal with, and he was, like, more of a follower. He was just a kid who was just making these silly mistakes, you know? Like like kids do, like we all did, you know? Yeah. So New York sets the age of criminal responsibility at 16, um, meaning that at 16 years old, most crimes will be charged as an adult in the state of New York. Um, So a lot of times these kids get arrested and before they even have like a trial, they're just offered probation. So they're like, okay, yep, I'll take it. Like, I don't have to go to jail. Great. But now you have a record. So anytime you have an encounter with police, they see that and they know that you are on probation for something, and so it makes whatever you did next that much worse, even though if you went to trial before, you may not have actually been convicted. And of course, they don't really explain to you the ramifications of pleading guilty and going on probation like that. So on the night of May 15th, 2010, um, he wanted to go to one of his friend's parties. So him and Shamel left, they went out, Um, they left the party around 2 a.m., and they're just kind of like walking around. They're really like the only people out on the street. Um, So police pulled up and they said that they had a witness who said that they tried to rob them. And they were like, nope, we didn't rob anyone. Um, Khalees like, look, you can check my pockets. So they checked his pockets, found nothing. Then they like went back and consulted with the other police officers. And they're like, oh, well, the victim said you robbed him two weeks ago. He's like, nope, I didn't do that either. Um, But they arrested him, took him down to the precinct. And again, there was no evidence that he did anything except for what this witness said. And so the theft victim was like a little bit iffy on his story. Um, He said the robbery, like we said, was two weeks before. The victim's brother took the police officers to the alley where it happened and he was like, look, here's a camera, like it'll show you everything. But the police never obtained that surveillance footage. The victim's brother said that he like told them several times, but they just said like, it's okay. They never like went to find it or anything. never filed an official report from the robbery and then the victim was like having a hard time adjusting and was just very nervous and anxious all the time his brother said that he like felt extra nervous around black people because it was a black person that robbed him Um, and he said he felt that every black man he passed could be the person that did it Um, and he felt like these guys were following him and were going to rob him 
And then on this night, he called his brother and he's like, I see the men who did it. They're wearing the same clothes. Um, so that's when they called 911 and when the police stopped Khalif and Shamel. So apparently it was enough probable cause for an arrest just because the witness says that these are the men that committed the crime two weeks ago, basically because they're black and wearing the same clothes. Yeah, and that I thought that was super important too about how the victim was like, any like black person he saw, he was like, oh my goodness, it's them. Oh, they're going to attack yeah. me. You know, so it's like already in his head. And I mean, the same clothes, I mean... I, I don't. I think Khalif was wearing like jeans and a and a t shirt or something that night. Like probably wearing the same clothes that every teenager was wearing in two thousand ten. Yeah, and they said like when you're like interviewing a witness, if you're like, is it this person? And they're like, eh, I don't think so. Is it this person? Eh, I don't know. Then on the third time, if they're like, okay, yeah, maybe that that's enough probable cause to just arrest yeah. people. And I'm like, yeah, what? <laughs> like it makes no sense. Which is just <laughs> insane. Um. And so eventually the victim had to be taken to the hospital several times and then decided that he wanted to move back to Mexico. So he's just like really has a lot of like post-traumatic stuff going on from the robbery that he believes was these two men. And New York is a New York City is a big city. And so yeah. I think he was just like, I can't handle this big city life. Um, I'm just going to go back. I'm done. Like Yeah. So, Khalif was arrested at 2.45 a.m. on Arthur Avenue. Um, He was taken to the precinct. He was interviewed 17 hours after being arrested. And he's like, look, I didn't do anything. I don't understand why I'm here. Like, I didn't steal this backpack. His mom got a call saying that he had been arrested. They told her that he robbed a person of a backpack that included a camera, um, $700, some cards, and an iPod. Um, So, they're like, okay, like stop and frisk is really big right now like there's just going to be a lineup and they'll let him go like people get arrested like this like it's fine it's not a big deal um because obviously you don't have to have a reason to be stop and frisk um so in new york it's like super common um and at this time it was common for around 1600 a day to happen and just to put this in perspective we want to tell you what the statistics are of races for being stopped and frisked Um, And I want you to keep in mind that the United States is approximately 75% white, 13% black, 20-ish percent Hispanic, and Native American and other races make up the remaining smaller percentages. So for a stop and frisk, 53% are black, 34% are Hispanic, and 9% are white. Um, Khalif said that he felt that the police just did whatever they wanted to him. They would throw him on the ground, just not being respectful at all. Um, at this time, there's a lot of people that are falsely arrested. Police will just go wherever a crime happened and just grab a bunch of people and arrest them, which is basically what happened to Khalif, except the crime happened two weeks ago. And they didn't get any search warrants to, like, check his apartment to see if he had these belongings. Um, because apparently just because the victim said he did it, that was enough and the police could arrest him. Um, so his bail was set at $3,000 and the majority of people in the Bronx don't have the means to pay bail no matter what the price is. Um, so with a $3,000 bond, his family would have to pay $900 up front. Um, but they just didn't even have $900. And I was thinking too, I was like, I don't even think I have $900 right now. Like if Kevin went to jail, I'm like, oh gosh, $900. I don't know. Here, take my credit card. (laughs) Like (laughs) where am I going to get this? Yeah. Um, which it's just an incredibly messed up system that we have that the amount of money that you have determines whether or not you're going to come back to court. Yeah. 
what? That's not... It gets more into that a lot. <laughs> um, so 85 to 90% of people in this area can't make bail. Um, and so basically the court system is like, okay, we'll release you, but you got to pay all this money first. Um, and so because they didn't have that money, his mom was a single mom who's raising all these kids because his father had left. Um, his father probably could have afforded it, but he thought that Khalif did it. So he was like, no, I'm not going to bail you out. You deserve to be there. And Vanita had a lot of heart issues, and so she couldn't work because of that. She had her first heart attack in the year 2000. She had a second in 2007. Um, and at this time, her heart is only pumping 25%. Um, so she has some medicine that she takes that can, like, help a little bit, but it's not, like, improving anything. It basically just keeps her alive at this point. So $900, like, most days she didn't even have food in the house. So being able to come up with $900 for bail just isn't going to happen. So one of her neighbors did give her some money, and so she goes to a bail bondsman to be able to get him out. Um, after they do the paperwork and accept the money, um, they say that actually the bail is denied because Khalif violated his probation from riding in the bakery truck. Um, so because he violated probation by being arrested, there's a hold on him and he can't leave, even though he, again, has not been found guilty of this crime yet. Just because he was arrested, he has violated his probation and he can't get out on bail at all. And that's something they bring up a lot, too, is they're like, is $3,000 really going to make a difference if this person comes back to court or not? Like, it's such, yeah. like, a weird amount. And, you know, it's like, I don't understand. Like, why would this amount of money be like, okay, yeah, you're for sure coming back. Like, it doesn't make sense. Yes, it makes no sense. Um, and again, remember, Khalif is 16 years old. Khalif is a child. So Khalif is held at Rikers Island. If you're into true crime, you probably know about Rikers Island. Yeah. Um, so it's called New York's Guantanamo Bay. It's very isolated, away from view. Um, people will often plead guilty to just like anything if they find out that they're going to be going to Rikers Island because they're like, I can't go there. Like, I'll, I'll say what I did, whatever. Um, it's difficult for grown men, let alone a child. And so Khalif wasn't really friends with a lot of people in, in jail, and he would get jumped all the time. The correctional officers would just allow inmates to beat up other inmates. It wasn't really, like, they wouldn't intervene. They would just kind of let it happen. Um, gangs are super prominent in Rikers Island. Like, basically, you're going to have to join a gang if you want to get out of there alive. Um, and it's really difficult to survive by yourself, so you have to have that protection of the others and the other gang members. Khalif said that it was just hell on earth and he felt like he would never be the same. Um, he said in Rikers Island there's feces on the wall, there's mice. Correctional officers would physically assault them, they would starve them. Um, obviously when you're an adolescent you have a lot of energy, your frontal lobe isn't correctly developed yet, so you don't have the impulse control of like an adult. Um, so a lot of the younger inmates would get into fights all the time, they would light fires. So Khalif was in Mod 2 at first, um, and he said that the correctional officers don't run the facility that the inmates do. Um, he said he would just like sit at a table and they would surround him and be like, you don't have permission to sit here. Um, eight or nine people would attack him at once. Like in Rikers Island, people will literally die over access to the phone. Like it is just so violent all the time. A man named Sutha Taylor was in jail with Khalif. Um, and he was interviewed saying, like, you do a lot of stuff for glory, like you want to make a name for yourself. If you smell weakness, they're yours. Um, so you have to take advantage of the people who are weaker than you. So basically, like, it's kind of like a kill or be killed situation. Like, you have to be the aggressor if you don't want to be attacked all the time. Um, 
they would be like hanging out in the day room playing cards and just get jumped. Um, they would cover the cameras. Again, the correctional officers would just let this happen. Um, the inmates are like, basically, we want your stuff and we're going to beat you up until we get it. Um, so they may move you over to like a different cell, but it's just going to keep happening. Um, Khalif said that he learned how to curl up and protect his face and his head when they jumped him because he's like, I have, there's nothing else I can do. And he was so confused about why like the COs were letting this happen. He said they're a part of it as well. They had a system called the program. They're like, you have to get with the program. Um, and you would give up your food, commissary, phone time. Just like you have to um, basically comply with whatever it is. And it basically turned into a gang that the COs were like a part of this extortion system. And they were eventually even charged for this when Rikers Island comes under investigation later on. As I mentioned before, Khalif is a 16-year-old in an adult male prison. So we wanted to go into a little bit of research about juvenile incarceration and how dangerous it is. Um, so I have a couple of different reports here. Um, there's some information from the Campaign for Youth Justice, a prison policy initiative report by Wendy Sawyer, and another one by Maddie Trollio. Um, so the Prison Rape Elimination Act's youthful inmate standard requires all inmates under 18 to be sight and sound separated from adults. So basically, if you are a juvenile in an adult prison, they often put you in solitary confinement because there's no other way around that. So like you get isolated from the whole world just because you're a child in an adult prison. Youth in adult jails also don't have access to youth services like they would if they were put into the juvenile system. Um, youth who are prosecuted in the adult system are 34% more likely to reoffend than those who are put into the juvenile court system. So by putting these children into adult systems, we're literally setting them up for failure when they get out versus taking care of them in a way that's more age appropriate for them. Yeah, and like Rikers Island had like a whole section dedicated to just holding like 16 to 18 year olds. Yeah. And they were like, they said they called it like, like, the animals, basically, because, I mean, there was just so much energy and so much going, and there was just, like, constantly things going on because yeah, they're, they're children, basically, yes. and all that. So it's just, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, one in five incarcerated juveniles in the United States haven't even been sentenced yet, and they're just awaiting trial like Khalif was. Um, nearly a thousand youth sit in adult prisons every day waiting on trial and less than, less than half of those were accused of a violent crime. So just let that sink in. Less than half of the children in adult prisons were accused of violent crimes. Okay. So 21% of white youth are detained before trial versus 32% of Hispanic youth and 30% of black youth. Um, incarcerated youth rates have dropped 60% in the United States from the year 2000, which is insane to think about the number of incarcerated youth in the year 2000. And it's estimated that 90% of youth who are involved in the justice system have experienced trauma in their lives before, which we know from all kinds of studies of all kinds of incarcerated people. Youth in adult prisons have worse mental health issues. Um, it reduces the chances of them returning to school later. They are 36 times more likely to complete suicide than those who are in youth facilities, and they're the most likely to be sexually abused out of all types of inmates, um, which is what led to the standard saying that youth had to be kept away from adults when they're in adult prisons, which they interpreted as just putting into solitary confinement. 
So they do have the greater risk of being in solitary confinement than they would in a youth facility for that reason. Um, black youth are 8.6 times more likely to be sentenced to adult prison than white youth for the same crimes. So white inmates rarely come through Rikers Island. Like if they do, they come and go quickly. They're not sitting there for years like other people. Um, again, they're legally innocent at this time. They haven't been convicted of a crime. In the United States, you are innocent until proven guilty. So these people are legally innocent, but they just can't afford bail. Um, and it took Khalees' mom two weeks to be able to get the money. But again, by that time, the bail was denied. So there was literally nothing that she could do. Khalif was just targeted a lot and it was rare for like one-on-one -on -one fights mostly like you would get jumped by like 10 people at once so it's like what are you supposed to do in this situation yeah because the Sutha Taylor guy was talking about how him and Khalif got into a one-on-one -on -one fight and Khalif was winning like they said Khalif was a good fighter but then uh -huh. because Sutha was in that gang everyone jumped him yeah so you can't win if you're being jumped no not at all Again, Rikers Island in general had a lot of corruption and abuse. Um, the New York Times was really digging into this investigation, a lot of civil rights violations. They found rat poison and food. Um, physical assaults were routine. The accountability for the CO officers was very rare. Like this is just such a general problem. So mayors Mike Bloomberg and Rudy Giuliani basically ignored the jail as much as they could. They're like, I'm just gonna pretend that that's not there. That's not my problem. Um, but people really started calling them out for it. So the former jail commissioner would start suspending officers who were caught on camera using excessive force. CEO union leader Norm Seabrooks um, demanded her resignation and was replaced with his childhood friend. Um, and the union was allowing COs to continue to beat and treat inmates horribly. The officers would steal from them, take their commissary, sell cigarettes and cocaine so that they can make a profit off of them. Um, if you've seen Orange is the New Black with how corrupt the COs are, this is legit. This is what happens. <laughs> like they're That's what I thought when I was watching it. I was like, wow, like this isn't that far off from Orange yeah. is the New Black. Like it's yeah. really not. They would take bribes to bring in weapons and drugs. Um, in the Khalif documentary, one CEO was interviewed and said that he um, would bring in cigarettes and drugs and then sell them because he made a huge profit. Um, Khalif would always stand up for himself. Um, he was a talker, especially if he thought things that weren't right. He would like speak up for it, but of course they didn't like that. Um, and if you had a problem with one of them, then you had a problem with all of them. And the CEOs would beat you up for not following orders. One of Khalif's friends um, from his childhood, Liana Bedgood, she would like write to him um, in red ink and he's like, I need you to stop because now they think that I'm with the Bloods. So when he was a child, he lived on the Bloods block. So he kind of already has that like connection sort of to them. Um, and this friend would tell a story about her being like super self-conscious about going to the beach. And he's like, no, don't be like, you're so beautiful. Like she really just told what kind of person he was and the heart that he had. And after his father left, he did join the Bloods briefly. Um, his nickname was Spade. Again, he's just trying to survive and everything is gang affiliated. So if you're not with one gang, then you don't have any protection basically. Um, but after he was locked up, he's like, nope, like, I don't want to be in a gang anymore. It's not worth it. I really want to stand up for what's right. And again, it doesn't really matter if he was in a gang before he got put in jail or not, because he was under 16 years old at that time. And that's the thing too, so much of like where he lived, it's like, you can't just be like neutral. You're either like with this gang or you're against yeah. them. And so a lot of times it's just 
easier to make those connections and to protect yourself and your family than it is to try and make a stand and not be with them. Yeah. So one day Khalif is asleep in his cell um, and he heard noises outside and saw people just like fighting everywhere. Um, So he came out and he was like, oh, well, this guy's a bully. So I'll get into a fight with him. Um, And like Courtney said, like he knew how to fight. It wasn't that he wasn't able to defend himself. And if you know how to fight, that gives you some like credit in the prison as far as like how the other inmates view you. Um, But if you target a gang member, they're going to follow you. Um, So he pissed off the Young Gunners, um, which was a gang that was founded in Rikers. And he was jumped because he punched a guy who spit in his face. And the guards, quote, tried to break it up, but there was two of them and 33 people fighting. So nothing's going to happen when you try to break that up. So they just kept going and he was like confused why there's so many people in the halls and like the officers are just not really handling it. So basically it wasn't stopped until the COs were like, okay, like, this is, they've gotten enough now. Like, we'll go ahead and and step in. And even when they put Khalif in a different room, they, like, kicked in the door and, like, beat him some more. So it was just, like, never ending. Yeah, and a lot of, like, the correctional officers who, like, were talking about this video were like, that group of prisoners should have never been in a hallway together. Like, you should never have that many. So they really think, like, these two correctional officers were just kind of in on it and were like, okay, go ahead. Yeah, they, like, set it up. Here, we'll put them in this room, but, like, any inmate knows if you kick in the door, it opens. Like, it's not a good door. So they really think they were in on that. Um, And the result of fighting meant more time in solitary confinement. One inmate in the fight got 40 to 45 days. Um, Khalif was immediately sent to solitary confinement and held there for months. Um, And so he said that he wanted to see a psychiatrist, but they denied him that. He said that he was just, like, feeling crazy at this point. And in solitary confinement, you're in a 12-foot by 8-foot metal cage. There is a mattress, a sink, and a toilet. Um, You have no human contact except for meals that are slid through a slot in the door. Um, And people will just, like, beat on the door, like, scream, bang their heads on the door. Like, I I can't even imagine the kind of mental strength you need to be able to get through time in solitary confinement because that's what i was thinking because we're all like wow this really sucks that we're we're stuck at home and like think of how crazy we're all going being right but then think like you don't have your tv you don't have your phone you have nothing yeah you're in like your smallest closet and you just sit there with no human contact yeah think about how miserable that would be yeah And in Rikers Island, they would just give solitary confinement for, like, the slightest infraction. So, basically, you would get, like, a ticket um, for whatever the infraction was. And what you did determined how long you would be held there. So, the maximum amount of time you could be held there was for 90 days. And that was for assaulting a staff member. But the maximum of 90 days is, like, per infraction. That doesn't mean that, like, oh, well, after 90 days, you have to get out. If you had three, four infractions, they just add on to each other. So this is going to be much longer than 90 days. Like, some people are held in there for years. And so the United Nations defines any period longer than 15 days straight in solitary confinement as torture. So at 17 years old, Khalif's first extended stay in solitary confinement was over 300 straight days. Um, At another point, he was there for almost 14 straight months. Um, So these prisoners would get hallucinations, they would be paranoid, extreme anxiety, problems with sleep, loss of appetite. Again, Khalif is a child. His brain is not fully developed. His prefrontal cortex is still developing, which is the section that controls fear, aggression, um, impulse control. And basically, like, his brain is not being able to develop as it normally would because he is, like, stuck in 
isolation. So I'm sure we all know the studies of like these Russian babies that are born into an orphanage with like no human contact and how they just basically can never function as normal adults because they didn't have that human contact at a time when their brain was still developing. So even though he is 16 at this point and he's gotten the most formative years of his life out of the way, like he, his brain it would still be developing for another nine years. And so he basically feels like he like lost his sanity and like his childhood again over a backpack that he supposedly stole that he did not steal um so he's essentially being tortured while he's legally innocent in the united states we have amendments in our constitution that are designed to protect citizens and the sixth amendment is the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury so ideally this is so you don't sit in prison for years awaiting trial and usually a speedy trial is around six months so why was Khalif in jail for three years? Well, because the New York has a ready rule. So basically, most states have a rule saying that you must be brought to trial in so many days. But New York says that the attorney must be ready in that number of days, which obviously makes a huge difference. So it doesn't include time attributable to court delays. So basically, if you go to trial and they're like, oh, we're not ready, we'll be ready in a week. Okay, but you can't find a courtroom in a week. So you schedule it for three months out. And none of these days are counting against your clock for a speedy trial. Um, so obviously, some prosecutors are going to abuse this. Um, so Khalif just had constant delays. So for like six months, they're like, oh, we'll be ready in a week. And then it just kept going on week after week. And none of that time was added to his speedy trial clock. And most of the time, these defendants don't even seem like human to the prosecutors like they don't even think about the fact that each week that i'm delaying a child is sitting in solitary confinement yeah and like i know even one of his delays was like oh the guy's on vacation sorry okay get it pushed back out three months and i'm like yeah okay yeah i totally get a vacation but there's like someone literally being tortured in a jail yeah, exactly. because you're not ready <laughs> Uh, basically, they thought that they could just get him to plead guilty and not go to trial. So that's another reason why they're like, okay, we'll find reasons to delay it because a trial is lengthy and it's expensive and it's a lot of work if we can just get him to plead guilty. They're like, everyone hates Rikers Island. Like, surely he's going to plead guilty to, like, get out of here. But he wouldn't do it because he's like, I did not do this. Like, I want my day in court. And they're basically punishing him for that because he's like, I'm not guilty. I'm not going to admit to being guilty, which is a whole other problem with the United States, the fact that they push so much to get people to plead guilty and that you can get a couple years for pleading guilty versus facing 30 years in prison if you go to trial. Most people are just going to plead guilty no matter what they did because they're not willing to take that chance. Yeah, and I don't know, I don't know if I put it in my notes or not, but I know at some point they were like, most people like spend more time waiting on trial than they would ever spend yeah. for whatever they're charged with. Yeah. And you know, in the US we have this like, oh, this beautiful justice system and you're innocent until you're proven guilty and you get to go in front of a jury and you get all this. And it's like, okay, but really in the US you only get off if you're rich. And yeah. I mean, like, O.J. Simpson, uh, you know, all the big people, like, they mm -hmm. get off because they're rich and they can afford the fancy lawyers who have time to devote to their case. But if you can't, yes. you're screwed by the system. And if you're poor, you know, well, I guess I better just plead guilty because what else can I do? Yeah, exactly. So Khalif's time in solitary confinement was especially stressful, like, waiting for trial because he had no idea what his future was. Um, and people there just get so distraught and like they can't stop thinking about 
the situation that they're in. They just get super obsessive over everything, including like water dripping, which sometimes a CO would do on purpose just to, again, mentally torture them. Like, think about if you've ever been in a situation where something is just like so incredibly silent, think about like how deafening it is, you know? And you're doing this like 24 hours a day and then you have this like noise like, I know I've heard noises that will, like, drive me insane, and I can, like, drown it out mm-hmm. with something, and there's nothing to drown this out. You just have this constant, like, it will literally drive you insane. So, basically, the COs have no training on why solitary confinement is bad psychologically, um, which we're going to get into some more studies about solitary confinement in a minute. Um, But the CEOs have no training on mental health issues. So if someone has schizophrenia and they're like yelling out, they don't understand that this is a symptom of their mental illness. They're like, oh, they're just acting out. They're not following orders. Like they have no comprehension of the effect that mental health has on your behaviors, especially in this situation. And that's the thing, too. Like, if you're sitting in solitary confinement and, like, a CEO was, like, mean to you, like, you have nothing else to think about except, wow, I cannot believe that CEO said this to me. Yeah. So then when he comes back, like, 24 hours later, you're still enraged because what else do you have to think about besides what he said? And so it's... Exactly. It's just... It's not a good system, guys. <laughs> no. Um, And for Khalees' mom, it was like an all-day trip to go up to Rikers and see him. So she would have to take, like, various subways and then a bus and then finally get there. So she's having to use, like, a whole day when she's in such poor health, like, just to be able to see him and give him some human contact. In the United States, everyone has the right to a lawyer, but that doesn't necessarily mean a good lawyer. Um, So for the most part, public defenders are really good people. They're good lawyers, but they're always understaffed and overworked. They just have this enormous caseload that they can't keep up with. Um, And a lot of times they don't even look at the information on your case until like right before you're going to trial. So they're not able to have the time to really prep for a trial to give you a good defense like someone with an expensive criminal defense attorney would be able to do. Um, And so Khalif barely even spoke to his lawyer. Again, he's just constantly refusing plea deals because he's like, no, like, I want to prove my innocence. I want my day in court. And obviously, if you get, if you plead guilty, you're still a felon. Like, you're still going to have this on your record, which means that you can't vote. Like, you're going to have trouble going to work later. Um, You're going to have trouble getting any financial aid and housing and job assistance, like all of these things because you pled guilty to something that you didn't do. So even though it would get him out of prison sooner, he's like, I don't want to risk that long term, those long term consequences. His mother, Vanita, was at every court date, um, but again, she was just so sick because of her heart condition. Obviously, Khalif's arrest just made everything worse. Um, she went to see Khalif one time, and she was, like, so sick because she's diabetic, and the jail took her candy away, so she wasn't able to keep her blood sugar up. Um, and so she, like, collapsed and was taken to the hospital, and, like, she woke up in the hospital, and she didn't even get to see her son after spending all of that time and effort to get there. So in the United States, a witness has to be reachable and obtainable for trial. So by February 2012, so again, this is almost two full years after this arrest, um, the DA couldn't find the witness. Um, So Khalif had spent over 420 days in solitary confinement by then, and the witness allegedly disappeared to Mexico. So he just literally left the country, and Khalif is being tortured in jail this whole time. Solitary confinement made Khalif start talking to himself. At one point, he was saying that he wouldn't go back in the cell to himself like he was like talking to himself and he's saying like I'm not going to go back in there so they gave him more days (laughs) like again this is just like permanently damaging his brain because he's a child and yeah and so 
Also, they talked about in the documentary studies and animals who were in social isolation. So they took cells, um, like from each, like animals who were in social social isolation and animals who were like with other animals and the cells literally would change their structure and functions like the cells would literally like scientifically change um so instead of making like neurons like they're supposed to they just started making like more stem cells like they weren't making what they were supposed to do and with animal testing they made it where animals are not allowed to be housed by themselves they have to be housed like with other animals but they don't do that for humans like that's like what (laughs) yeah i mean yeah, so... That doesn't make any sense. To depress you even more, I'm going to go ahead and give you some statistics on solitary confinement. So we have um, a study by Dr. Craig Haney in the Crime and Delinquency, um, a Psychology Today article, and a study by Stuart Grayson, um, and that was in the Washington University Journal of Law and Public Policy. So in Dr. Craig Haney's study of Pelican Bay State prison inmates in 2003, they found that 73% of inmates in social isolation were chronically depressed versus 48% in like the traditional general population. And 63% of those in solitary confinement for 10 to 28 years, yes, I said years, I did not mess that up, years, said they constantly felt on the verge of a breakdown versus 4% of those in the traditional setting. So more specifically, um, a high percentage of the prisoners um, in the study reported suffering from heightened anxiety, hyper-responsivity to external stimuli, uh, difficulty with concentration and memory, confused thought processes, wide mood and emotional swings, aggressive fantasies, perpetual distortions, and hallucinations. And these are all like very high percentages on all those. Um, And moreover, like, Fully 34% of the sample experienced all eight of these symptoms, and more than half, at 56%, experienced at least five of them. So, that's a lot. Yeah. (laughs) And those are some pretty, like, big things to be feeling and experiencing. Yes. So, and even years after their release from social isolation, like, many individuals who had been in solitary confinement just struggle with mental health issues and, like, reintegrating into society and, like, feeling comfortable in confined spaces. I mean, you have to have PTSD from being stuck. Like, yeah. you would have to go crazy anytime, like, you get close. Like, we have, uh, near where I live, there's a former penitentiary that you can visit now. Um, it's called Brushy Mountain. Mm-hmm. And Kevin and I went there, and they had, like, the little blocks that were, like, the solitary confinement. I could not even walk into one with the door open. Yeah. Like, it freaked me yeah. out. I couldn't do it. Like, I got so anxious just looking at it and I cannot imagine like being in it and they said like Mm -hmm. people who were in those like at Brushy Mountain like when they got out they were blind because it was so dark there's no light like they would just keep it dark and like they would have to have like an escort for the next few days while their vision adjusted back like this is torture Mm -hmm. people this is torture 100%. So in Texas, suicide rates for individuals in solitary confinement is five times higher than that of the general prison population. And these effects are even more exacerbated with juveniles. Um, Again, with the juvenile, your brain is not developed. (laughs) You're literally stunting growth of your brain. Mm -hmm. And some additional adverse effects include sleep and appetite disturbances, anxiety, panic, rage, 
loss of control, concentration and memory problems, violent outburst, paranoia, hallucinations, high blood pressure, and self-mutilating behavior. Um, and it can cause PTSD symptoms, just like an individual who experienced torture or trauma, like in war. And from hearing Khalif, he had a lot of these issues, and they did mm-hmm. interview a lot of prisoners who were in solitary confinement. And they would talk about, like, they would show their arms and be like, I cut myself all the time because I can control that. Like, I can control that pain. Mm-hmm. And, like, one guy would say, like, he would regularly, like, hang himself because he it was a control thing. Like, clearly this is messing with their minds. Mm-hmm. So Dr. Stuart Grayson, um, he was the one in the Journal of Law and Public Policy, uh, and he was kind of showing the different post-traumatic stress and long-term personality changes. Uh, he did coin the term reduced environment stimulation syndrome, which is just like extreme sensitivity to stimulation, like a faucet dripping. Um, and that a third have hallucinations, and the hallucinations vary based on the perceived intent of the viol- of the isolation. Um, and those who were put there for their own safety reported calming hallucinations versus threatening ones for those in punishment. Yeah, so it's like, even if you were put there for a, quote, positive reason, like, okay, maybe you're not having, like, monsters coming to kill you, but you're still hallucinating, like, yeah. even if they're, like, quote, good hallucinations, like, your brain is still not processing this, and then, obviously, for Khalif and most people's situation where they're put there for punishment for some infraction they committed, like, now they're having these, like, violent hallucinations. Yeah. And in 2011, the UN Special Repertoire on Torture and Other Cruel, Inhumane, or Degrading Treatment of Punishment condemned the use of solitary confinement except in exceptional circumstances for short periods of times and never juveniles or those with mental illness. So, um, again, back to Khalif. He's a juvenile in solitary confinement for a long time, Um, at least 10 months at one point and then finally gets out and he goes back to like general population and that is a really hard transition when you're alone no human contact then you're just thrown back in with everybody (laughs) like yeah um and they said like the the juveniles like the younger men who were there are like more vulnerable and they're in more fights and they don't really realize their limitations because they're like well i've been in solitary like they just they can't think rationally once they get out Mm-hmm. So 95% of people who were let out are not able to emotionally, like, control their impulses, their anger. And Khalif got in one fight and immediately sent back to solitary confinement for a really long time. And he just keeps having these court dates and they keep just not going anywhere. So there was a guy in the documentary named Bernard Couric. Um, And he was at one point in solitary confinement for about 60 days. And he talks about how mind-altering it is. And he's like, you just want out. Like, you get so paranoid. You literally go insane. Solitary confinement does not make anyone better. Like, if you're there for punishment, it's not going to help you. It's not going to make you better. It's only going to make you worse. So it creates just enormous anxiety. And... Like, you have no concept of what's going on in the world. You're just in your deepest depression. Um, You're just like, how can I get out of here? Like, how can I end this? Um, And he said he would literally time the COs walking because they'd come and, like, check on everyone. Mm -hmm. And he was, like, timing it to see if he could literally hang himself in time to, like, before the COs got back. So, Khalif, like, repeatedly asked for psychiatric help. And he was repeatedly ignored, which is a huge problem, again. So, and so he started to feel 
kind of suicidal and they weren't sending any psychiatrists to come help him. He's just giving up hope. He's stuck here. Um, so he decides to make a noose and he's ready to jump. And the COs see him and they're like, yeah, go ahead. I mean, what? You said you were going to do it. Just do it. Um, and there is like a video of all this that was shown in the documentary. Um, and so the COs then like come in and he jumps and they left him there for a minute being like, I'm gonna, before I cut you down, I'm going to let you feel some pain so you can like see what you're doing. So they're just not doing anything, just letting him there. So then they come in and start beating him and punching him. And Khalif is like, okay, I know in the hallway there's cameras. So Khalif like runs out to the hallway to the cameras so they can see him. And they're just hitting him and like tackling him. And mm -hmm. the CEOs didn't get in any trouble for this at all. It's just normal day on the block, I guess. And suicide attempts are very common on Rikers Island. I'm sure you've heard us talk about how horrible Rikers Island is. And again, like many solitary confinement survivors talk about self-harm, talk about trying to kill himself. One guy was like, I mean, at least 80% of inmates have to think about it. They have to just think about finding a way out. Yeah. So after this suicide attempt that Khalif had, that was, he ran out to the hall, um, he wasn't taken for psychiatric treatment. He was 17 and his mother was never notified he attempted suicide. Um, and they said that it, he wasn't attempting suicide. He was just trying to get out of solitary confinement. Yep. And um, they call it like malingering. And so they say with like all this, like they're constantly trying to find evidence of like malingering. And they're like, see, like he's just get looking for attention. He's just trying to get out. He's just whatever. And they're missing the bigger story that like, no, these people in solitary confinement are depressed and mm -hmm. would rather end their lives than continue to be where they are. Where they are being constantly tortured. Yes. So while Khalif is at Rikers, he attempts suicide four more times. And again, his mother does not know about any of these. And every time he does, he's sent to solitary confinement, which is not helping. Yeah, which again is somewhere that you should not be if you have a mental illness or are a juvenile and yet they're using it as punishment for trying to kill yourself. Yeah. What? It, it makes no sense. And a lot of times these suicide attempts would line up when he had a court date and he would just get sent back to Rikers because he's like, I'm, this is a fucked up system. I'm never going to come home. Mm -hmm. And this following story was caught on camera and eventually does become a way bigger story. Mm -hmm. And so the COs just aren't treating anyone right or with respect. And they especially hated Khalif. It seems like everyone at Rikers just Khalif was their target. Um, probably because he wouldn't join a gang and just stood up for himself. <laughs> mm -hmm. So then like the CEO would even refuse to give Khalif toilet paper for when he went to the bathroom. Like the simplest thing, like toilet paper. Yeah. And just fought him on a lot of things. And so at one point, um, a CEO is talking to Khalif. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to beat you up once you get out of the shower. Like, there's no cameras in the showers. I'm going to beat you up. So he gets Khalif, like, out of his cell. And Khalif is handcuffed. And the CEO said something. And Khalif is like, I guess I said something back. And the CEO slams him on the floor. And is, like, shoving his face into the floor. And then all these other CEOs run up and just help get on top of him, basically. And are just like all on top of this small guy. And I mean, Khalif is in handcuffs. Like what, what could he be doing? And the CEO's like, oh, he was trying to get away from me. He was yeah. doing this, doing that. And I'm like, he's in handcuffs. Like you have control of him. 
Like, yes. Where is he going to go and what is he going to do? Are you kidding me? Yeah. So, and Khalif had like a big bruise on his face because it was being shoved into the floor. And he was like, you know what? Like, I cannot wait for this CO to be like kind of like a trial kind of thing or like a, mm-hmm. a hearing on it. And he's like, I'm going to tell there's a video. They're going to see it. But the CEO never had any hearing. Um, and they basically said, like, unless an inmate has, like, a broken skull or they're in a coma, the CEOs just get away with it. And they even were saying, like, it kind of appears that maybe, like, the doctors and nurses in the jail are kind of in on it, too. Um, there's some false reports. There's some false things. Um, so they probably know some of the CEOs and are like, yeah, I'll take your word for it. I believe you. Whatever. Prosecutors at this point should have known... They had no case. I mean, they've tried for two years to get this witness, and he's not showing up. And also, let's think about how much of your taxpayer dollars uh, go to housing inmates. Like, everyone uses that excuse all the time of like, oh, uh, I'm not going to get into the death penalty, but they're like, oh, I'd rather, you know, my taxpayers not go to keeping people in jail, blah, blah, blah. Your taxpayer dollars are paying for someone, for a child to sit in prison for three years for stealing a backpack when the witness can't even be located. That's where your tax dollars are going. Yeah. And the victim's brother um, says the, the district attorney did contact him twice. And that was it. Never heard anything else. Yeah. Twice. They could never get in touch with him. They can't find him. Nothing. And Khalif's public defender, like, was told by them, like, they're like, we know where the witness is. They're just waiting to transport him back. So the public defender is being lied to also, thinking that there's a witness when there's not. Mm-hmm. So between June 2011 and February 2013, Khalif rejected 13 plea deals. Yeah. 13. That's how many plea deals they offered him because they just want him so badly to take a plea and get it over with. Mm-hmm. And Cleve's like, no, I'm not going to do it. I will risk being found guilty by a jury, but if so, that's how the system works. But, like, I'm not taking this plea deal. Mm-hmm. So there was Judge Patricia Domingo. And this woman, she seems like like the Long Island medium, but bad. <laughs> like, if you had, like, an evil Long Island medium. Like, she talked like the Long Island medium, but, like, wow. she's evil. <laughs> Kind of. Um, Uh So she got brought into the Bronx because her specialty is plea deals. They call her a closer. And she said in an interview, a day, she does 30 to 70 felony bench cases. She gets that many men or women to probably plead guilty to felonies. Mm -hmm. And, like, as we talked about earlier in the United States, if you're a felon, like, you lose voting privileges. It's hard to find a house or a job. It's hard to get into college. I mean, every college application, every job application, every apartment application asks if you've ever been charged with a crime. Like, Mm -hmm. it's a huge mark on your record. And she just kept pressing people into police. And she didn't really care where this victim was, what was happening to Khalif. Like, she just wanted to give him a plea deal. Mm -hmm. Because it looks good for their statistics of, oh, we closed this many cases. We got, quote, justice in this many cases. But... You didn't. Like, you got a plea deal. Yeah. So, March of 2013, she's brought in to clear up the backlog of the Bronx. Like, her whole job is like, I'm just going to come in here and get people to take pleas, get them out. Um, So, she offered to drop the felony charge to two misdemeanor charges for Khalif, saying he'd be released in four months if he accepted. But Khalif said, if they're offering this to me, they know they're wrong. Mm -hmm. Like, they know they're wrong. 
So he refused. He said, okay, I'll go to trial. Um, and Domingo just said, okay, no sweat off my back. Literal tra- <laughs> like transcript. She was like, okay, I don't care. DA again says he's not ready for trial. And the request is two weeks. So they come back in April, still not ready, still don't have a witness. And that's when um, he's offered another plea deal and says, you'll just get out on time served, which at this point is 33 months. You get no probation. You can go home that day. Felony dropped to a misdemeanor. And Khalif said it sounded really good, but he just had to say no. And he's like, I can't do it. I cannot let them win. Mm -hmm. And I cannot say how much courage and bravery and strength this takes. Right. That you were being tortured. Like, even his mom was like, I would take it. She's like, I would take it to go home. And he's... He even said, like, people at the jail were like, you were crazy. Like, you were stupid. Like, what are you doing? But it's like, at this point, he's also 18 years old. And it's amazing that he's able to, like, think that long term of, like, if I can get through this and I can prove my innocence, I'm not going to have this mark on me forever. Like, if I plead guilty now, for the rest of my life, this is going to be on my record. Every single time somebody does a background check on me, anything, this is on my record. And he's able to, like, think that far ahead of, like, no, I want to stay in my ground so that I can be proven innocent and get on with my life and not have this stay here. Yeah, and one of his brothers, I don't remember which one, also um, had been charged with a felony. Like, basically, there was, like, a Bronx rapist, Mm -hmm. and his brother was found, like, having oral sex with a girl outside of school, and they arrested him and charged him and he just took a plea deal and so he thinks also like Khalif saw like Mm -hmm. his life and what it was like when he just took this plea deal and was like I'm not gonna do that like I'm gonna stand up like this is ridiculous and Khalif is just like I have to do it I have to take a stand if I have to go back it happens I have to stand up for myself um so finally Judge Domingo is like you guys don't have a witness, do you? And the prosecution's like, they're like, yeah, we don't, we don't really have a witness. So the judge is like, okay, either you bring in this witness, like right now, or you dismiss these cases. Like your choice, but you got to do one. No more time. And the DAs are like, yeah, we don't have a witness. So they were like, okay, we'll dismiss the cases. So 1,126 days after his arrest, the Bronx DA formally withdrew all charges. Um, and Khalif wasn't here for this proceeding. Like, it happened when he was still in jail. Yeah. So, on May 29, 2013, they release Khalif. Um, at 2 in the morning, they release him with a Metro guard and just say goodbye. Yeah. They're just like, bye, see ya, have fun. Sorry, but bye. Yeah. Um, so, when he first came home, he was, like, super relieved. But then... He was like, I lost my childhood, you know? I didn't get to go to graduation with my friends. I didn't get to go to prom. I've missed out on all these, like, holidays and birthdays with my family. Um, And there's nothing to help him transition. And this is the same with, like, wrongfully convicted people, too. Once you're released, you're just released. Mm -hmm. Goodbye. See ya. And, like, on your resume, and they're like, what happened these three years? Oh, I sat in jail waiting trial for a case that was dismissed. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. he was just kind of abandoned once he was released um and nothing to help him with like the trauma he experienced or retransitioning um and his mom was like he was a stranger like the trauma came home with him he was completely different um Mm -hmm. his sister nicole was on the phone she was like oh let me talk to him and she said when she started talking to him she literally looked at her phone because she was like this isn't khalif like this isn't my brother i don't know who this is but Mm -hmm. he's different 
So they tried to have like a get together to make him feel loved and you know just chill and hang out with everyone, bring the company to him but he just didn't want to talk to anyone. He wouldn't come downstairs. He was just zoned out. And also like think about how overwhelming that must be to spend that much time in such a small area or being jumped constantly by other people and then to suddenly be surrounded by well-meaning people who love you, but that still has to be just so overwhelming to your system. Yeah. And so just like, like that. Okay, you're in jail, now you're home. Yep. Bye. So he's trying to get a job. Um, he doesn't have any interviews. He also doesn't have a high school diploma because he was arrested at 16 and there's no youth services in the jail to help him finish out his schooling. Um, so he's just feeling discouraged. Um, and he said like, he would still talk to himself like he did. Um, and he was like, mm -hmm. I noticed I would sit there like on the subway having this like out loud conversation with myself. And he was talking about how embarrassing it was. Like he would just look up and everyone's staring at him and he's just talking to himself. Yeah. And like before he was in solitary confinement, he didn't have any of these issues. And he would just like sit in his room. He would sit in the dark. You just can't really like reverse that torture. Mm -hmm. So his brother, Akeem, was like, all right, we got to get a lawsuit against the city for how they handled this. They called a bunch of lawyers, and they all said no until they found Paul Prestia. Told him about the situation. Khalif showed up, talked to him. Paul said he felt like a real connection with like Khalif and was like, I got to help this guy out. He's been so wronged. Um, and so they're going to file a lawsuit since there was many civil rights violations here. And they filed it against the city. And in fall of 2013, his story kind of starts spreading in the news a bit. Um, how he was set free. There was no apology. There was just nothing. It was just, okay, bye. And Khalif is never going to get those years back of his life. And he's never going to reverse that trauma he experienced. He's never going to be able to reverse the effects it had on his developing brain. Um, and he just had a lot of paranoia. And his mom was like, he'd be in the house and she'd be like, shh, shh, shh they're listening to us. You can't, you can't talk. They're listening. Um, but even his like brother and his mom did notice there were like cop cars out on the street that would sit and then like drive by and stare at him. Kind of like maybe the cops were watching him a bit, mm -hmm. but like Khalif just didn't trust anyone. And he would just kind of go through episodes. He would like line bottles up and like talk to them. And uh, in December of 2013, he did attempt suicide again. And he did go under psychiatric evaluation this time. And they were like, oh, it's just a matter of stress. And he, he was like, no, I feel like I'm like losing my sanity. Um, he went straight to adult. Like, you don't have your fun years. Like, think about 16. Think about how you just don't care in the world. Mm -hmm. And then think about being dropped off at like 21. And you got to go out and get a job and like be an adult. Like, you don't get any of like your fun years. <laughs> like, it's all taken from you. Yeah. And like Courtney said, none of that like transition either you know just like straight from one to the other yeah and so due to the suicide attempt he was prescribed risperidone which is a treatment for schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and he was first uh, prescribed this in solitary confinement in Rikers and the doctor is like how do you feel like how does it make you feel and he's like I hate it like I feel like a zombie I feel spaced out and the doctor is like okay well um, if you don't take it you can't go home so, okay, so Khalif's like, all right, I'm going to take the medicine. And he's like, I decided I want to live. I want to make a life for myself. I can't, you know. He said he would, like, go down to, like, Broadway. Mm -hmm. And he would just, like, look. And he's like, everyone here is, like, 
going to work. They're going from work. They're, everyone here has a purpose, and I want to be that person. Mm-hmm. So he's like, I'm going to change my life. I'm going to do good. So he enrolls in school to get his GED, and he does pass the test on his first try. Um, and he then enrolls in the Bronx Community College. So he was majoring in business management, and he wanted to run his own business someday. And everyone said, like, if Khalif said he'll be here, he'll be here. He was super reliable. He's so bright. He's so smart. He's here. And he, like, rode his bike to the college every day. And he would just, like, carry around a notebook and just take notes, just trying to take in all the information he could. And he had a few counselors he would talk to there. And he was like, I just don't really know who I am. Like, I feel like I don't have an identity. You know, I feel like so much was taken from me. And I'm trying to figure out, like, who I am. Mm-hmm. And there is a program called a rewilding program um, that was founded by these two men. And they take formerly incarcerated men like out on a road trip. So they go on adventures and they try to like, they like rock climb and go out in nature and try to get like a reset on their minds like Mm -hmm. try to help them. And Khalif really, really was excited about this and wanted it so badly. But he was told this trip probably wouldn't happen for like six to eight months down the road. So he was very disappointed, and he's like, I need, like, immediate relief. Like, I need something. Mm -hmm. So in October of 2014, Jennifer Goman uh, wanted to write a story, and he was like, okay, yeah, you can tell my story. So she published it. It was called Before the Law in The New Yorker, and it became a national sensation. Like, Jay-Z read this, wanted to meet him, apologized to him, encouraged him. Jay-Z was a producer on the time Khalif Browder story documentary. Um, so he's interviewed quite a bit in it. Um, oh, wow. He was talking, he had a really good friend who was in Rikers who got killed because he wouldn't give up his phone time. So he's very passionate about all of this. Um, mm-hmm. And he became really close friends with Rosie O'Donnell. Mm-hmm. So Rosie like read his story and she was like, I want to help him. Um, so she brought him on the view with her and she was like, you're a hero. Like, I want you to know, like, you're such a hero. You have so many people on your side she gave him a laptop she gave him a kiss on the cheek on air it was a little weird because she was just like grabbed his face and like kissed his cheek <laughs> he's like oh boy yeah. i didn't ask for this <laughs> but they did they would talk and remain friends like after this mm-hmm. um so then he has like tons of people just like riding out to him reaching out for interviews but he didn't really like this attention like he doesn't want to be famous he just wants justice yeah and then it didn't really help going forward with his paranoia or his situation. So he did kind of believe some of the counselors he was working with were working for the FBI and were reporting what he said. And then people on the street started thinking, okay, well, you're you're on The View with Rosie O'Donnell. Like, you met Jay-Z. Like, you have to have money. Mm-hmm. So he got into a fight with a man on his way home, and they started fighting, and the guy shot him in the stomach. He did, he was okay. He was able to be released from the hospital. It was two days before Christmas. So he came home and he's like, all right, I got to go shopping for my mom's Christmas present. So he's in New York shopping and nobody would stop and give him a ride. Like no taxis would stop, nothing. So something about that really triggered him. So he kind of went to this dark place. He went on the top of a building on the top floor and he just started preaching about cops and the internet and how everyone's watching So the cops get called and they come and he's just rambling. So they take him to a psych ward in Harlem Hospital. And that is actually where Khalif spent Christmas. So this is another holiday, another moment taken from him. Um, And again, he's like, I don't like this medicine. Like, I don't like how it makes me feel. 
and the drugs he was on did have side effects like paranoia and suicidal thoughts. So if you're already paranoid and you're on a medicine where it can heighten that, it's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. So Khalif really wanted to go and travel. He's like, I need out of the city. I need a reset. Um, and his lawyer did kind of push back and he's like, look, you, you kind of need to stay around until this lawsuit's done. We have depositions coming up. We're close to a settlement. A settlement will just kind of allow you to put everything behind you and start fresh. But Khalif didn't care about the money. He's like, I just want them to be held accountable. Yeah. And he just wanted to get away. And like, make sure that this doesn't happen to other people in the future. Yeah, exactly. So in the spring of 2015, um, Khalif had a 3.56 GPA at the Bronx Community College. And he was um, a part of like the race, the race team. Like, track and field, that's what I'm looking for. I was like, the people who run. Courtney's not a runner, guys. Not a runner. That race team. (laughs) That race team. But, like, his counselor was like, he started running and he sprinted to make sure he finished first. Like, he, she was like, I was concerned he was out of breath at the end, but he did it. So, again, then, a guy on the street confronts him and he's like, tell me about the case. What happened with the case? And the guy's, Khalif's like, I don't want to talk about it. So the guy stabs him with a knife and people just keep coming to him and trying to get his money and trying to fight him. So they did end up arresting him and his brother for resisting arrest in a fight. And his brother was like, as soon as we were arrested in that like jail, jail cell, he just starts pacing and he's like, I have to make it to school. Like I'm going to miss my classes. And after he was released, he went straight to school, um, to go to his classes and he did have a hearing for June 10th for this case. Um, and this really weighed heavy on him because he's like, everything that happened before is going to happen to me again. Like, it's all going to happen again. Yeah. So on the morning of June 6, 2015, um, he came downstairs and uh, his mom was like, here, I made you some breakfast. And she, he was like, no, 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 you eat it. I'm fine. And she's like, that's kind of weird. Like, you always eat your breakfast. You never turn down food, you know. Mm-hmm. And... His brother um, was leaving. He has a job orientation that day. And he was like, look, I'm so proud of you. Like, I'm so proud that you're my brother. Like, you're doing such great things in your life. Um, And they said that really wasn't something they did. I mean, I think we all kind of know talking to our siblings. Like, I'm going to be like, oh, you stink. You're horrible. Like, you never really compliment them (laughs) just because that's the sibling way. Um, Yeah. But he was just saying how proud of him he was. So... Khalif, like, came to his mom and asked if she was okay, and then he went to his room, and she said she kind of heard some moving around, she heard all this stuff, and then she suddenly heard, like, a boom, and then she walks out the back door, and she sees him hanging from his room, so she calls 911, um, so he'd hung himself outside of his window with an air conditioning unit cord, and... This part's hard. So before they take him away, she was like, please, please wait. Can I please just give him one last kiss before you take him away? So she kisses him on the cheek. She said his face was so swollen. And his brother, Kamal, was like, I don't believe it. Like, this can't be true. And he calls a neighbor. And the neighbor's like, no, like, I also saw him hanging from the window. Like, it happened. So many people in the media were like, this isn't suicide. Like, he was basically murdered by the system and by Rikers and by NYPD and the justice systems. Like, they're responsible for this. Like, they mm-hmm. drove him to this. And because of 
uh, Khalif story, oh, President Obama at the time did ban solitary confinement for juveniles because of this case. Mm-hmm. And like I said, also, he had that good relationship with Rosie O'Donnell. And that day he'd messaged her and was like, hey, I just kind of need to step away. I have some mental health issues. You know, I'll talk to you later. She was like, okay, I understand. Like, I want to be in your life as much as you want me there. Like, I'm not going to, you know, try to make a friendship mm-hmm. you don't want. And then, like, she was like, I still, she, she was just, like, crying the whole interview. And she was like, I still can't believe it. Like, I still just, yeah, I don't understand. So, he did have a lot going on, you know, once mm-hmm. he was released. He had trouble transitioning. He was shot. He was stabbed. He was arrested for a new case. Like, he would literally say all the time, he's like, I'm cursed. I'm just cursed. And he's thinking, you know, in four days, I have to go to court. They lied to me the first time. They're going to mm-hmm. lie this time. And Khalif really wanted to be an activist. He wanted to make change in the world. Um, And he did spark an outrage in many people. So they started questioning bail reform, questioning the system and constitutional rights. There was Khalif's law um, Mm -hmm. that would build in court delay two time in the speedy trial, which should have been a thing from the beginning of New York. Come on, catch up with the pace here. Mm -hmm. They also did raise the age of criminal responsibility to no longer 16. Mm -hmm. So... His mom was like, he needs justice. You know, he was here for a purpose. He, you know, all this had to happen for a reason. And none of the judge or the prosecutors would even say they dropped the ball or could have done anything better on it. No apology. This whole system destroyed Khalif. Mm -hmm. And his mother, like, really wants them all to pay. She wants them to be held accountable for what they did to her son. You know, how many young men have to go through this before there's a change? So they did file a wrongful death suit saying it was the system that killed Khalif. So, but they hit a bump in the road because of Eddie, his father, um, who's kind of a piece of shit. Sorry, Eddie, but you are. (laughs) So Vanita really wanted him to sign a waiver saying that you are not going to take any of the money from the estate or ask for any money. You could have paid for bail. You refused. Mm -hmm. You haven't been in his life. You never talked to him. You thought he did it. You didn't even give him the benefit of the doubt. And Eddie refused. He refuses to sign it. um, And he ends up hiring his own lawyer, Sanford Rubenstein, to represent him. And Eddie just wants a public trial. He doesn't want a settlement. Wants to make big name. So that really kind of put a step back in this Mm. case. So uh, Vanita did have three stints in her heart. And they wouldn't put any more, and her next step was open-heart surgery. But she didn't want it. And after Khalif killed himself, she was very depressed. She stopped taking her medicine, um, and her heart just got even more damaged. So it ended up going down. It was pumping, like, 25%, and now it's down to 19%. Your heart is supposed to pump at 100%. Just think of how low this is. Um, and she just didn't, she just didn't care anymore. Yeah. And she ends up being taken to the hospital. So she's very ill after Khalif dies. She's very sick. Um, and then she, one day something comes over her and she realizes, like, Khalif is not here to tell his story. Khalif is not here to get justice. I have to take up this fight for him. I have to be the one to continue. So she becomes an advocate. And she was like, I never, I hated public speaking. I never spoke to anyone. And now she's going out everywhere she can, talking about Khalif, telling his story. Mm-hmm. And she wants justice for him. Uh, May 29th was the day he was released, and he called it his new birthday because that's when he was released and it was a new life. So they tried to go to his grave, you know, every year, like, on then. So, again, her heart is getting worse. It's pumping less. She probably needs a heart transplant. 
and Vanita's really trying to finish what Khalif started. And there was even a Khalif Browder scholarship, which was founded, and it would award a scholarship to formerly incarcerated students going to Bronx, the Bronx Community College. Um, but Vanita is going through this chronic heart failure, and now Eddie owned the house she was living in and is like, hey, I'm going to kick you out. So while you lost your son, um, and there was this ivy that grew like right outside the win- Khalif's window and nowhere else. Like it, you could see it in the video mm-hmm. just right there. And wow. she was like, I would just look to that and it was my comfort. You know, like I would run in his room and mm-hmm. open the window and I have to see this ivy and be like, okay, Khalif, I see you, you're there. So now Eddie is about to kick her out mm-hmm. when she can't work. Her heart is the worst it's ever been. Um, trying to get more money, trying to be a piece of shit. I don't know. <laughs> don't think highly him. <laughs> so, and she lived in this house for 31 years. She raised her kids there. She wants to stay in this house. But the city is still just not talking on a settlement. They're trying to delay it. But Vanita doesn't have a lot of time with her heart, needing a heart transplant. Mm-hmm. And um, she is eventually taken to the hospital. And she did stop breathing. And she did die in 2016. And she's buried next to Khalif. Um, and she just, she wanted to see his story finished, and now she doesn't have that chance. Um, and the lawsuit was on hold until someone could take her place because there was a fight among the siblings and a fight with Eddie. Mm-hmm. And Paul, the lawyer, is like, I don't know if we just ran out of time. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what's going to happen. Three days after Vanita passed, Eddie sold the house. So just immediately <laughs> get out of there. Um, then on March 30th, 2017, um, it was announced they were closing Rikers Jail. It's going to take a few years. They can't just shut it down. And it appears it's not going to be closing a fit, like fully until 2026. But it is closing, and hopefully that's a start in the right yes. direction. Um, yes. The city didn't end up settling with his family for $3.3 million in January 2019. I tried really hard. I can't find who received this money since there was that kind of fight. Mm-hmm. I did see that Eddie's lawyer, the Sanford Rubenstein, was saying, like, not making a comment. So I don't know mm-hmm. if Eddie kind of won and is getting this money or mm-hmm. if they came to agreements. I'm not sure. It didn't really say. And then this was a quote from the documentary I just thought would kind of be a good closing line. It's by Michelle Alexander, and she wrote the New Jim Crow book, and she said, Khalif's story was not terribly unusual, but I was moved because it's impossible not to be moved if you really listen and really open your heart to stories like this. So, oh my God, I'm going to (laughs) cry. So what happens to Khalif happens all the time, and people don't want to accept that or believe that, but it does. And Mm -hmm. hopefully there's a lot of change I feel some change brewing in the U.S. Yes. <laughs> Hopefully we'll tackle these issues that happened in Khalif's case. And let's just keep Khalif's name out there and keep him remembered for everything he went through. And, yeah. Yeah, like his mom said, like, like she feels like he had a purpose for being here. And while no one wants to think, like, my son's only purpose was to live and be tortured and die so that doesn't happen to other people she was able to have that mindset of like something bigger is going to come out of this and hopefully eventually more people will be saved because he was willing to take a stand because I mean if he had pled guilty and gotten out like honestly none of this probably would have happened I mean he may 
he he would have still suffered from mental health issues so we don't know if his death would have been any different but none of this information would have come out the way that it did um so him staying there and sacrificing his own mental health to be able to say like i'm going to stand up for what's right like that's going to lead to change in the future yeah but that is the sad story of Khalif Browder. Yep. So it's hard to transition now, but I know that's a, that's a tough one. That was that was a rough one. Um, Courtney, what is your perk of the week? Okay, my perk of the week is on Friday, July third, which was last Friday from when this is being recorded. Hamilton officially started <laughs> streaming on Disney Plus. And I watched it, and I, like, cried, and I laughed, and it was amazing. I've been obsessed with the soundtrack, like, since it came out, and Mm -hmm. it never really toured anywhere too close to where I live. And when I went to New York, the ticket prices were so high that I could not (laughs) justify, like, $300 a ticket on top of my plane and Airbnb and all that. But I finally got to see it with the original cast. It was so good. It was just so, so good. And I'm already ready to watch it again. Kevin's probably ready to kill me, but I'm ready to watch it again. It was so good. It was so amazing. It was such a highlight to my week. So um, We can FaceTime and watch it together if you want. So Yes, please. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Kevin was like, I was surprised because Kevin was like, yeah, I'll watch it with you. And I'm like, what? Like, I expected really? I'd be watching this alone. And yeah. he was like, but you can't sing. And I was like, oh, fine. Like, Are you sure? Are you sure I can't I think... sing along? <laughs> I think Andrew will like it because Andrew likes musicals a lot. So I think he would enjoy it. It's so good. It's so good. (laughs) I love it. Anyway, um, and I know that there's some backlash on it. Don't come at me. I love it. Leave me alone. Let me enjoy my shit. Okay. (laughs) So, (laughs) Jacqueline, what is your perk of the week? Um, So my perk of the week, so the farmer's market here has reopened with all of their social distancing guidelines and they're having it at like a larger park than it used to be held so things can be more spread out and you have to wear a mask and they limit the number of people and all that good stuff. Um, But so we finally went to the farmer's market here for the first time yesterday and it was delightful. There were like a hundred dogs there. We got some fresh fruit and produce and Andrew got some kombucha that he's obsessed with and we got some like <laughs> breads and like I like have my little like canvas bag rolling up <laughs> tossing all my stuff in it and I just I belong here. <laughs> so it was it was just very nice and um I really appreciate the way that they have taken precautions in it as well like like even though it's outside and we're able to stay far apart like everyone still has to wear a mask and like they're very careful with like exchanging money and those sorts of things um so that's very much appreciated and it was just a really nice time yeah we have a farmer's market here but I haven't been and with Knox County pretending it doesn't exist I don't even know (laughs) if I want to go yet until it ends but yeah that sounds super fun and like a good day we used to go to um, the farmer's market where we used to live, but we lived in a very small town. So it's like, you have produce and stuff, but you didn't have, like, all of, like, everything. Like, they had yesterday tons of flowers, which I never really get, like, real flowers. But I don't know, maybe I will, because they were super pretty. <laughs> and, like, everyone's, like, leaving with their, like, bags of veggies and, like, a bouquet of flowers. And I'm like, that's just delightful. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going to be that person. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, 
Just a reminder, we are still running our contest, so make sure you go follow us on Instagram at Caffeinated Crimes Pod. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also email us at caffeinatedcrimespod at gmail. Um, If you feel so inclined and you want to be a part of our Patreon family and get some bonus content, um, like we mentioned before, our top tier subscribers are getting their Caffeinated Crimes mugs in the mail either very soon or already have. So if you would like something like that as well, um, you can donate to us at patreon.com slash caffeinatedcrimes. And we would like to give a very special shout out to our newest Patreon, Sierra. Um, Welcome, Sierra, and thank you so much for joining our Patreon fam. And go have a cup of coffee. And don't commit a crime. Mm